1: Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Today we have Steele from Rescon, and uh, he's had uh, quite a storied past. He's been uh, flew the F-15C model, which I'm getting ready to do. He flew the F-16 for a little while, and then when his guard unit transitioned to uh, MQs, so MQ ones and nines, and now a word from our sponsor, CrowdBotics Defense is a data analytics software company serving the United States Air Force. They make it easy for active duty servicemen and women to turn their ideas into products and tag team DOD adoption. If you or someone you know has an idea for how tech can speed up your team, increase efficiency, or make your life easier, reach out to CrowdBotics Defense to talk it through. CrowdBotics Defense will help you to your project scope, timeline, and cost, and work with you to secure the budget you need to build it. Any product built and adopted by DOD will be credited to you as a collaborator. Reach out to Julian at crowdbotics.com for help. That's Julian, J-U-L-I-A-N at crowdbotics, C-R-O-W-D-B-O-T-I-C-S.com. Also, there will be a link in the show notes. Everybody I talk to in the DOD sees inefficiencies that could be streamlined or rectified with the hard work of software engineers and people in the United States Air Force. So work with Crowdbotics Defense to make a product that you are proud of and you're happy to work with. Uh, He was able to start flying those and then even went to weapons school there. Uh, After he did all that, he transitioned over to the innovation side, and that's what we're going to focus on. But, Brian, thanks for being here today, and uh, go ahead and tell us about yourself. It's not a trap.
0: Yeah, right. I know what the standard response for that is. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for the intro, man. Um, It it was a great ride in the Air Force, uh, 23 years Got to do some fighter flying. I was a FAPE actually, first off, so uh, did the pilot training thing in Columbus, Mississippi. Um, So the first four and a half years of my career was in central Mississippi there. Um, Then fighters, and then uh, eventually uh, the last half of my career was MQ, uh, like you said. And then just like everyone, I had to grow up at some point, so kind of transitioned to a leadership staff um, track after weapons school. so went to Germany for my last kind of hurrah. Um, I was part of the as part of the guard and uh, kind of augmented uh, A three staff uh, at Ramstein. Um, so while I was there, I was working on the uh, MQ nine contractor operation that was flying out of Poland at the time. Uh, it was pretty new, so kind of took that over. Um, had a lot of great lessons out of that, uh, which we can talk about because I, that is kind of the transition that. That I had out of the Air Force, um, you know, into the innovation world and into the business world. Uh, so being on staff and having a, a project with with its own, with its own budget that I had to kind of, you know, manage and then fight for. Uh, it was a big big budget that constantly ballooned because it was a contractor operation. Um, so I ha- having to you know make a, a logical cogent argument to, you know, sometimes to um, you know. One star, three star, four star generals. Like, hey, sir, I know this is already this already costs a ton of money, but we need to do X, Y, Z, uh, and we need more money. Little did I know that would set me up for startup uh, life pr- pretty well. So, um,
1: yeah, yeah. How was how was that with the? Uh, so you're you're kind of having these conversations. Obviously, you're the person who has the uh, expertise in the area that says, "Hey, I know we spent money." we need to spend more money. How does that conversation kind of go? And then how often is that happening? Are we finding that we're putting more and more money behind programs that we already have?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a you know, loaded, loaded question, multi, multi-layer multi question. <laughs> so I guess the first part that comes to mind, you know, is rolling into that space with both both an operator mentality and a kind of a higher level leadership kind of strategic mentality, right? So when you present something to your boss you have to be able to look at it from their perspective too right so when that when that is the four star you safety commander like i can't possibly put myself in that in that guy's shoes right he's at that time it was um general harrigan cobra so i, I did kind of know him i, I crossed paths with path with him at tyndall when i was in the F, f-15 um but anyway, I, you know, I couldn't get into a, that kind of headspace, but just trying to look at everything from a strategic standpoint, like th- this is why you want to spend this money boss and not just an operator standpoint or a SME standpoint uh, is a huge challenge. Um, yeah. And it, you know, I don't know if you've ever been involved in a, like a large budget program like that, or part of you as a. As a red-blooded taxpayer, you're kind of like cringing like, man, this is already really expensive and I'm asking for more. But you get over that pretty quick because you're advocating for an, an effort that you know is worthwhile. Um, you can get passionate about it. Um, so, yeah, part, part of me knew it was kind of a ridiculous ask when I when I went and, and did that, but I, I actually believed that the capabilities were really important. And, you know, let's, let's back up a minute. What, what were we doing? We were laying the foundation for... RPA operations, so remotely piloted aircraft operations in uh, Eastern Europe. It turned out, you know, a year and a half, two years later, that a lot of stuff went down in that area, and that it became pretty important. So, uh, in the end, it kind of, it kind of all made sense, and all, and all came together. So, anyway, back, backing up to your question, um, yeah, what, what is that like? It, it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge, but believing in what you're talking about um trying to look at it from from all those different angles from the the practical angles to the uh, to the more long-term strategic angles uh and then selling that so that you know your your boss has the uh the notion that he can't say no
1: and i feel like they probably have those meetings all the time you know it's just like one person after the other is saying i need money i need money i need money and they are the one who who the buck stops there, right? So they have to make that decision. So you can't really fault them because they've got to triage what actually needs to be done, which is for what's nice to have, I would I would assume. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine that responsibility. That, that's another great point, dude, is what, what may seem like, uh, you know, more money than I've ever dealt with in my life is, uh, you know, dropping a bucket, to those guys and um you know it, it sounds cliche but uh it, we there were a lot of bright shiny objects that that they had to deal with um you know F, f-35 f-22 movements you know right rightfully so those got um you know a lot of their attention in the theater um so the, those fifth fifth gen objects so the uh the little MQ9 contractor operation, uh, despite its price tag, was was pretty much an afterthought. So, it, it, you know, we use that to our advantage as well, right? Like, pretty pretty big in- impact for you know a relatively small footprint, and um, we try to leverage that as much as we could.
1: I think uh, one thing that people probably don't realize, who haven't kind of been exposed to the MQ9 side, is there's a lot of infrastructure. It's not, hey, we're going to fly MQ9s out of here, just like you bring a fighter out, they just land. And as long as there's liquid oxygen, nitrogen for the tires and fuel, they can operate. Uh, but an MQ nine, there's so much more infrastructure that probably has to happen at the base and then all surrounding areas. And then probably some operating, um, not so much, I guess, agreements, but also, uh, because it's a, it's not a VFR or IFR, right? So, uh, visual flight rules or instrument flight rules. So it's this weird in-between where you can't just take off and fly across Europe. Uh, So I assume were those some of the, some of the hurdles and roadblocks you guys were trying to break through?
0: Yeah, absolutely. But again, we leveraged them to our our advantage because those things weren't figured out and we used the contractor operation to kind of pave the way for, for big blue to eventually move in. Um, That, that really was one of the kind of underlying, you know, baseline premises of what we were doing besides the the intel that the airplanes generated which was awesome um it was just this forcing function of hey if, if if we figure this out in poland it's a win for our relationship with poland we can we can lift them up and say you guys have figured out how to incorporate unmanned aircraft into your airspace you, you are actually ahead of the faa in that regard and you're definitely leading europe so it's a it's a huge win for them, um, and then we we use that to springboard to the neighboring countries, and you know eventually had airspace agreements with like by the time I left it was like fourteen different countries. Um, so yes, it is not easy to move an MQ-9 around. Um, you, you you know the term ACE right? So agile combat employment is yeah. lo- loosely used with uh, the MQ-9. They're getting much much better at it um, over the years and. Uh, because they, they have to be but yes it, it is a it is a monumental effort um, and yeah w- we were able to throw money at the problem with the contractor to kind of avoid some of the um, you know the regulations and and bureaucracy of a full uh, you know Air Force operation so we could kind of size up those just pay money to say hey figure out how to live and how to eat we'll help you with that but um you know basically that's on the contract and then uh we'll, we'll use you to to figure out um, you know all those other things that that really really helped out when when big blue moved in which they did because sencom you know was winding down their operations and uh lo and behold uh ucom heated up
1: yeah the uh what were some kind of parallels or some things that you learned while working with A3 and A5, and then now that you're in the innovation space, how, what what did you learn, and how are you kind of using that to to help you today? Yeah, it's it's kind
0: of crazy how it all came together. Um, the big thing that that stuck out to me uh, from an innovation standpoint was, you know, again, we were we were trying to, you know, si- sidesteps not the right word that has a negative connotation. We were trying to leverage <laughs> the contractor operation to the max extent. So one. One way to do that, uh, you know, one, one piece that we could possibly leverage is uh, the innovation space. So the process to, to put a new widget on an airplane, as you well know, is, um, you know, for, for right, wrong, or indifferent, but for very good reasons, right? It's difficult in the Air Force. to, You can't just strap something new onto an F-16 and go fly uh, or an F-35, yeah. Um and certainly, you know, MQ9 is no different, uh, maybe even more painful because of, like you said, all the infrastructure and all the networks and things that are touched by a new piece of software or hardware. But if it's a contractor operation, um, there's a little more flexibility there. So, uh, you know, you can potentially say, hey, uh, as a service, can you provide this new type of sensor? Or You know, this is the requirement. We need to sense this. And maybe the, the contractor's solution to that is a sensor that's not necessarily fielded in the Air Force, but it's a win-win because, you know, they can get visibility now for this new capability. Um, so as an example, um, you know, there's a lot of interest in what happens to the MQ-9 if the, if the data link is um, interfered with or, or severed, right? So I have to be careful with what we talk about, obviously, but... I don't think I'm saying anything controversial there, right? So uh, if you're flying the airplane via Datalink and you're downloading the intelligence from the airplane via Datalink, it's bad if that Datalink goes away. Yeah. That's not earth shattering. It's understandable. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So, okay, so this is the translation into the civilian world, into the the quote-unquote real world, right? So in the real world, you have cloud and you have edge, right? So you have edge systems... Uh, like your phone or, or your self-driving car is an edge system where you don't want that car to rely on its 5G network connection to figure out its uh, its path down the road, right? You need that to be computed in real time, just the latency and the, the possibility that that link could be severed is no good, especially, you know, it would happen at the worst time. You would drop signal right when, you know, grandma pushing the baby carriage across the street and it has to figure itself out. That's the last time, yeah. you know, the the last uh, place you want to be relying on your cell phone connection. So that has to be done locally on the device, which is called edge computing, right? So there's a huge world out there where not just military, but um, everyone can benefit from edge computing. And, oh, by the way, as as devices become more and more powerful, there's more and more data being generated. Like our, our networks and, and the bandwidth is just completely saturated. So... We need devices to be smart so that they're sending not the raw data back to be processed, but like decisions, like you know bytes instead of megabytes. So, in the case of the MQ9, you've got a uh, you know an HD 4K sensor that's sending full motion video back, so you know it's megabytes and megabytes of data over a satellite link. It's a ton of bandwidth that's um, susceptible to you know, jamming both uh, intentional and unintentional. So, you know, if you, if you can have that thing process the video on board and make decisions off of that, a decision can simply be, I have found a, you know, an SA-8, I have found a, a T-72. Uh, but it, it's making that decision on board and then it's just reporting the fact that I found I found this thing at this location, which is, you know, just one line of one line of code as as opposed to 4K video. So that 4K video, you know, in the normal world gets sent back all the way across the world. And then some poor person, you know, in a windowless room stares at it for hours and hours on end to say that's a, that's a T-72. It's a huge uh, just waste of bandwidth and resources and manpower. And, you know, I feel bad for that person. If the machine, you know, if the edge thing itself can say, oh, that's a T-72, which sounds easy enough, right?
1: Yeah. Well, and I assume there's some constraints that come along with that. So to put that edge computing on the machine, that requires more than currently exists, right? Because there's no edge computing now, like say an MQ-9, at at least the host aircraft. So then how does that look? If you want edge computing, you want this kind of AI processing, what does that look like? How do things have to change to, to house it under today's tech, I guess?
0: Yeah, that's, Yeah. A key key question and you know it has two answers. Uh so how, how do you improve the edge computing capability of a of a device? Most people immediately jump to hardware, but it is a two-pronged solution, it's hardware and software. So obviously software is where I come in, where ResCon comes in. So um it's a it's a great segue to, to what we're up to. So yeah, most people think, you know, I need to do auto-target recognition uh, you know, on my drone or on my, you know, so when I say drone, let's, let's kind of switch gears to an army, an army dude. That's like pinned down, uh, by, uh, by small arms fire. And he wants to send he wants to pull this little quadcopter out of his backpack and send it out, uh, to figure out where the, the shots are coming from. Right. And he wants that thing to be autonomous. You know, maybe it has some sort of, uh, you know, microphone system on it where it can, It can sense the shots and kind of home in on it, and then it can auto-recognize a firearm and kind of correlate with other intel and say, dude, that's the bad guy. He's right there. So most people uh, think, okay, if I want to make that happen on a little quadcopter, which is a a quadcopter is a great kind of example of an edge device, right? So it's power-limited, it's small, it runs on batteries. So if you've got a huge computer running on there, it's going to run out of batteries and not be able to fly very long, so it's kind of a great um, kind of optimization edge system to to consider, and and we want to do a lot of things with with quadcopters. Um, so yeah, so if you want that thing to be smart, most people think, well, I need to get like the latest generation of of uh, you know GPU, like a um, like an NVIDIA you know Jetson. Processor. I need to somehow integrate that in, so I can now do these advanced AI uh, ML processes. It, part of that's true, but what if you could accomplish those same things, but through software, accomplish that on on legacy hardware? So, right where we think about kind of our our standard algorithms that we use, um, you know, machine learning, deep learning type algorithms that. Uh, they do take a lot of um, computing power especially to train and then when once they're trained you deploy them to your edge device they're they're pretty hefty models to to evaluate in real time so they take a lot of computing power so if you were able to have a better math better model you could potentially evaluate that model on kind of legacy hardware that's already there or take it a step further you could have software that's um, that's so powerful that, or so low power and and um, kind of revolutionary that you could have multiple instances of it and actually clean up and reduce the power consumption of your current processes. So that's kind of where we're we're headed.
1: When I think that's, those are kind of makes me think of two things. One thing I just posted about it on uh, my LinkedIn account, which was the F twenty two Raptor just flew with third party software on it which is a huge game changer because so often are jets specifically hindered by their ability to get a new operating system. So the F-16 calls an OFP. Uh, so think your iOS for your iPhone uh, and your operating system is going to control what your software or your, your hardware can do. Well, jets only move as fast as their software updates. Uh, but now we're talking we don't need new hardware we just get this software update that can be a game changer and now create processing and computing or, uh, I guess, uh, thinking or learning or, or uh, assessments that wasn't able to be done on the same hardware yesterday. And that is a big change because you think now we have we have, I don't know, thousands of fighters that can go in for a software update and have a massive tactical advantage now. That is not accessible because you think everything runs on Intel assessments like, oh, so, so many aircraft went into the depot level maintenance to get ripped apart and new parts went in. But now it's, hey, some guy who always plugs into a jet plugs into a jet, but then that jet is now different than yesterday. And that's a huge change because when you're thinking tactically and strategic and operationally, like that is a big problem for an in, in enemy, whether it's us looking at our, our adversaries or our adversaries looking at us, which I think that's that's huge. And then when you talk about it's not a massive multi-million dollar airplane, it's something very small that can't have all the hardware needed for it. Now it's just a small amount of hardware not needing all that juice to run uh, to get that benefit of like a big clunky kind of ai machine on the uh, the edge device did I, am i understanding that correctly? yeah and
0: i i love that story too i saw that um come through linkedin and you know that the mq9 was kind of ripe for that kind of treatment as well and something that was was posited I, I don't know whatever happened to that effort um i think the guard kind of got pretty far along with basically creating a uh, for lack of a better term, a DMZ in the ground control station where uh, basically you could run any, you know, within reason, you could run software in there, third-party software, and you didn't have to accredit and get an ATO for every single, every single thing that came through because it was operating within this demilitarized zone that was kind of specially designed to, to take on uh, third-party apps. So the fact that the F-22 did it is amazing. Uh, I love the idea of, you know, you tailor the jet, for the day for the mission. And then, you know, like, dude, I, I don't, I don't need this air air to air app today, or I don't need this air to air ground app today. I need to upload the specialty app that's specific to this mission and off you go. Um, right. So you don't have to have like unnecessary things kind of like bogging down the, the, uh, the OS. Um, yeah, that's, that's a really cool thing. And yeah, I, I think he, you understand it pretty well. So, um, Increasing edge computing is not all about hardware; it's also about software. So, and the hardware manufacturers recognize that because there is a there's a physics limit, right, to to processors and um, you know chip design, uh, just the the fundamental physical limits of, of how we uh, you know make these things until we shift over to quantum, which it's going to be quite a while before those things are reality, and then you know shrinking those down to practical size etc. So, yeah, we're basically, if you're familiar with Moore's Law, right? So, um, yeah. you know, faster, cheaper, better. Uh, about every year uh, you have that. Um, yeah, that, that that runs into physics pretty quick. It already has started to. So, uh, even the hardware manufacturers are looking for new ways to approach problems and, and new math, right? So, Cause that's all. That's all it is in the end. Is, it's just. It's just math. It's just software. It's um. Yeah, just new new ways to to tackle these problems. Where deep learning has done amazing things and really kind of grabbed the the spotlight when it came around. Um, you know, I want to say like thirty forty years ago when it started, and really has has a lot of momentum and a lot of money uh, behind it for research, and it is great for Kind of these large models for um, like nat- natural language processing, so Siri and Alexa no no worky without like the cloud cloud connection and that that big model running in the, on those computing resources in the cloud. Um, but you know amazing capability there. Uh, and then you know auto target recognition, same thing. So um, to be able to have kind of like a generalized uh, software that can recognize multiple different things. Um, that, that's just going to be a, a big model. What we're starting to chip away at is uh, machine learning processes that uh, are specific to time series data. And, um, you know, where, where deep learning will work, but it's way, way overkill. So much so that, you know, we've shown that we can do the, as well or better, you know, with like a million times less power or less data or a million times faster, uh, training times. Um, so I can give you some spe- specific examples, uh, as we get into as we, yeah, know. well
1: actually before we get, yeah. yeah, yeah. As before we get into that, we kind of got ahead of ourselves. So Rescon, what do you guys, we, you know, you obviously started the company. So how, how did that start? And then okay. obviously we can expand on what we're, what we're talking about now on what you guys are working on just so we give the whole picture. Yeah.
0: Um, well how it started is, is a pretty, I think, a pretty cool story that I, I want to share, kind of, you know, as its own vein. Because if anyone's listening to your podcast and uh, you know is kind of in the same boat that I was, the pathway that I found to like owning a business, um, I I had no idea it, it existed, uh, and I think there's there's a lot still to know about it, um, and to kind of learn and and to facilitate about it. So the the way Rescon kind of came about was. Well, number one, it was dumb dumb luck, which I hate the fact that that's true. I hate the fact that there isn't some sort of organized uh, you know, funneling system for people like me to be paired with people like my, my co-founder, um, co-founders. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, when I was in Germany on staff, uh, one of the big, big brain dudes on staff um, that kind of helped me uh, along with the MQ9 project uh, he knew a guy who worked at DIU, which I'm sure you're familiar with, right? So, or worked with DIU yeah. uh, on the civilian side. Um, so Defense Innovation Unit out in Silicon Valley. So this is an entrepreneur who had, had touched some DOD um, organizations and had, was somewhat savvy about what DOD was into. So he was hired, this, this gentleman was hired by Ohio State, which is um, was my hometown at the time. Uh, Columbus. Uh, I was in the Ohio Air National Guard. So um, so it just so happened that this dude knew a dude who was hired by my hometown, big university. And, the, and this gentleman had kind of taken upon himself to look at all the IP, the intellectual property portfolio that this university had. And he kind of handpicked the things that he thought uh, could be dual use, right? So DOD would be interested in, but also had a commercial kind of tech future. So that was a really smart thing for him to do. Like, I wish there's more people doing that, right? Um, and then the fact that I just got introduced to him randomly. So me being someone that, you know, I was coming up on 23 years in, I knew I was gonna get out. Uh, I didn't wanna be an airline pilot. I wanted to try my hand at business. I just, I really wanted to own my own business and I didn't wanna franchise. I wanted to do a startup, but I, I'm not an inventor. Uh, I, can, I can tinker around and like, I can build a drone for you, but I, I can't. You know, I don't have the, the PhD in computer science to to come up with something. And then, you know, I have this kind of insider knowledge of, of what's going on with um, unmanned aircraft and and kind of the intel processes around there. I, I I know where some DOD pain points are. So to pair someone like me with someone like uh, the gentleman at OSU named uh, Ray. Like, I wish there was a mechanism out there to do that because it was it was a really good match. So, you know, Ray, Ray said uh, when I was introduced, Ray said, "Here's this IP. It's uh, it's all about edge computing, machine learning, uh, advanced encryption, which we can get into on a different podcast." Uh, he's like, "Do you think you could make a business out of this?" I'm like, "Oh my, yeah, uh, absolutely. Like this is like what I work on every day. This is what we talk about at our desks in the in the vault every day." this exact thing and what you're proposing does it way better than like what we're trying to do right yeah so i had to um i had to create a a pitch deck basically to pitch my business and i went i entered into kind of a blind competition uh for that for that ip which i was selected to um you know in the end i was selected to 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 have the privilege of Receive the license for the IP. So what does that mean? Uh, the email, which I should print out in frame, says, uh, you have been selected. Uh, congratulations. And then it says, you know, at the bottom, this does not come with compensation. <laughs> in fact, it's the opposite, right? Like, not only do you have to figure out how to pay yourself, um, you know, there's a lot of expenses involved with, with starting a business. So, yeah, it's definitely not all... Uh, Ice cream and puppy dogs and rainbows. It is uh it's challenging and you know, we can get into like how how we figure that out to this point. Uh, but that that's how it came about. So uh, a gentleman that got hired by Ohio State that just so happened to have a, like this DIU DOD knowledge background that assembled IP that he thought was interesting, and then me coming like wanting to be a part of this community and start a business. And it was just, it was a really good, good match.
1: Well, I feel a lot of people leaving the DOD, at least on the pilot side, don't, don't even think about the innovation space, about the startup world, you know, cause I think a lot of, you know, my business partner and me and, and a lot of the pilots like yourself are all like, well, I'm going to separate and go to the airlines and you know what I mean? And And it's not a bad life. It's not a bad gig. It's just, different people want different things. So I think it's, I think it's good that you kind of struck out and and tried to go find a different path and it seems like it's working out. So, so we kind of talked a little bit about the product, the, you know, um, the edge, uh, computing and everything. Uh, but can you kind of give a little bit of, of the intro, that kind of big picture, what edge computing is attempting to do that we, haven't covered unless we've already covered it. yeah
0: so let let me just tell you like what our angle on it is so uh so i mentioned ray who worked for the technology commercialization office at ohio state um which you know all all major universities have have these offices there's professors that create inventions all the time and they're professors they don't either have the interest or the time you know or the business savvy to to do the monumentally challenging thing of like taking a bar napkin idea and making a product out of it. That's actually pretty hard. So I get it. So, um, but yeah, the, these technology commercializations, commercialization offices are all over the place. Uh, and actually the government labs have similar, uh, offices as well. Um, so there's just, there's a ton of IP out there. I don't know if you knew that, There's just a ton of incredible inventions, like game-changing, world-changing inventions, more than you can imagine, and it's just sitting there because no one has the time or the opportunity to, to try to commercialize it. Anyway, so I, I just so happened to find a small chunk of that, and um, so then you know what? Okay, so what are we gonna go do? So my my co-founder. Um, is not ray is actually the inventor himself so the professor at ohio state whose name is dan so you know he's he's a 30 plus year professor he was the chair of the physics department at duke before he came to osu yeah he's a super big brain um his phd is in optics and then i think a lot of his research has been in quantum optics but he's also gotten himself involved in uh, this edge machine learning technique that he's refined over the years so where's the common thread thread there uh, you know, Dan Dan is really a minimalist so he's challenged himself his whole career to figure out like what the minimum is to do something so quantum inf- information theory is um, like encoding information on a single photon and like transmitting it from yeah so can't get much more minimum than that um yeah. and then on the machine learning side he, he's been working on this technique called reservoir computing so rescon comes from reservoir computing or reservoir control because reservoir computing is uh is particularly well suited for controlling complex systems but reservoir computing is a is a form of machine learning it's actually an artificial neural network a recurrent neural network that uh is just it's it's super low power and low data and can do like i said it can do as well or better than kind of your state-of-the-art deep learning algorithms it just takes a lot less data and power to get there um yeah so i i can give you some examples uh, and dig into more specifics uh of exactly that but before i do like Dude, so if anyone out, out there is like, "Wow, bar napkin and, and college professor," and then we have a company, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot more to it than that. And um, so I, I had to figure out this whole SB, SBIR STTR world, and I, I know you've yeah. talked about that here before, and uh, so I don't know if we need to get basically into an in- introduction of what that is, but there's a ton of government money out there. Uh, well, hopefully. It gets passed because it's up for a, up for renewal and it's being blocked right now. But um, hopefully it continues because it's been wonderful for our company and for a lot of others. But this is um, this is money that the government has to to sponsor research into uh, subject areas that they care about and and edge computing and machine learning uh, certainly is like new novel novel methods of uh, Data fusion and and data analysis is definitely something that they care about. So, uh, we had early success both in the state of Ohio. So, you know, whatever state you go to, they're going to have small business, um, you know, kind of incubator funds. They're going to have small business, uh, you know, basically. Uh, you know they're, they're in- injecting funds into the economy for people like you and people like me to to make businesses and, and to make cool things happen within their state. Ohio's done a great job with it. They have tons and tons of programs. We've taken advantage of a couple of them. There's lots of organizations in Ohio that are meant to pair with businesses like ours to to kind of shepherd us through the process. So we're we're paired with a a company called Rev One Ventures. Rev One is in Columbus, so they're closely tied to Ohio state. There is, you know, there is a ton of innovation coming out of Ohio state, especially in like the, the medical space. Um, and then Rev one gets money from the state of Ohio to, and they, they get to manage it through grants and through kind of salary reimbursement programs. So we've hired interns over the years and, um, you know, we get like half their salary back through Rev one because they manage a state of Ohio program to do that. So anyway, it's uh That's been a big help, but what really got us going was these SBIR, STTR, uh, contracts that we've won. So we've won five so far. We've completed two and we, we have three that are, uh, ongoing. They all kind of just started this summer. Uh, our first phase two. So phase one is typically like 150 K for six to nine months. A phase two is 750 for, you know, 12 to 15 months. So in order to get to a phase two, you have to have done a phase one. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty big milestone for Rescon that we got into a phase two. And uh, we were actually selected last year for another phase two, but it wasn't funded uh, under the Agility Prime program. So I don't know if you've heard of Agility Prime, but um, that was our very, very first phase one was through Agility Prime, which was an Afworks, uh kind of sprint to look at the uh, urban air mobility or advanced air mobility space, if you know what that is. That's like oversized, oversized yeah. drones that can carry people. Like air taxis.
1: Oh yeah. wow! Oh, I have seen those. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So a lot, of, the, a lot uh, of the tech in the, in the you know small UAS drone space applies to these larger ones. Go ahead. What were you gonna say?
1: Oh, I was gonna say yeah. I've seen them. They were talking about how they, it was going to carry security forces around the base to go check. You know, if there was a, an issue, rather than driving around, they would fly those across. Um, yeah. So when you for your. Uh, the, the unfunded selected, but unfunded is, uh, is such an unfortunate thing. I mean, I appreciate that they, they select it, but you're like, yeah, 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 but there's no money behind it. And the problem is the base doesn't have three quarters of a million dollars to be like, oh yeah, we got this. Like that's just that cash doesn't exist. So selected and unfunded is, is effectively not selected. You know, you have to get in the right room quickly to get money out, uh, because if you don't. Odds are that thing's not going to go anywhere. Uh, so what did you guys get selected for the phase two that you guys are, one of the phase twos that you're working on right now? Yeah, so. Like what product were you producing?
0: Um, our sponsor is the uh, Lifecycle Management Center Propulsion Directorate. So you, you mentioned a base. that That is a potential sponsor. Like your end user could be a base or your end user could be um, you know, a weapon system. It could be. The F thirty five program office. So in our case, it's not the program office. So lifecycle management center AFL LCMC also has the program offices under it, right? But it also has these um, you know more generalized directorates. So the propulsion directorate is uh, you know working with industry for the kind of producing the next generation of, uh, of of engines and propulsion systems. So our sponsor, our our technical. Kind of point of contact, our manager for our our project is actually the uh, the software lead for adaptive controls for propulsion. So the fact that we found this person is like the perfect person for us, right? Because we had pitched in phase one that we could create an adaptive controller for a small jet engine, so something called a, mi- a micro turbine. So these are really interesting little things for several reasons. Um, you know cru- cruise missiles use them right so uh, th- it's a jet engine so it, ha- it has to be somewhat hefty but it's making a one way trip so it's not like you can't like reuse it over and over yeah. again uh, yeah. it's not really meant for that uh, the ones that are made in America for American munitions are really really expensive and only made by a handful of uh, OEMs right so that's kind of st- uh, the standard story right in our in our contractor world, so, but there's a lot of uh, kind of upstart manufacturers of these little turbines. They're not American, though, right? The Ger- Germany has one that's called Jetcat that's pretty popular uh, for with hobbyists, so people that are making no kidding like remote control airplanes with with jet engines in them will use these things. Um, that's cool. And then uh, Czech Republic has one, and uh, China China has several. There's a whole new um, kind of industry forming around this that uh, is kind of the coming together of advanced additive manufacturing techniques. So there's several startups out there that are like 3D printing little jet engines, which sounds amazing, but that's how advanced printing has gotten, right? You can print in basically like a shell and then the inner core. So two or three pieces, you're, you're printing these things. So. Uh, those are really- those are in development but okay so how, how do you control this little thing um, so the little jetcat has its own proprietary kind of black box controller you can't crack into it you don't really know what it's doing so on one hand it's it's a simple thing so it doesn't really need a simple or a, an advanced controller on the other hand it is I mean, it's a little jet engine it's a complex dynamical system if you want to control it in some other way you have no ability to do it cuz it comes with this proprietary controller that's literally like embedded in it that you can't easily or no. you know you're going to avoid all the warranties like you don't want to you don't want to mess with it. So our theory our proposal was that we could we could wrap our own controller around their proprietary controller. So we would control not just the jet engine but we would control the system that comprised that was comprised of the jet engine plus proprietary controller. Nice. And then what the proprietary controller does is just sets a shaft speed. But if you actually want to control an aircraft um, you know, based on thrust, so you want to know how much thrust is coming out of there, well, it turns out that um, that's not a very simple thing. It's not linear. Uh, it's not as simple like, well, the shaft speed is this or the exhaust gas temperature is this, therefore the thrust is this. And we, we actually proved that pretty decisively in our project. So we put a... A 100-Newton jet cat, which is a small, you know, I think it's the smallest that they make. We put it on a thrust table, so, you know, actually had a load cell that could measure how much thrust it was producing. We measured all the uh, the signals that we could, so, like, vol- voltage to the fuel flow um, pump, to the fuel pump, um, shaft speed. And then there's an internal thermal couple for exhaust gas temperature, pretty standard. We put our own thermocouple on the outside to measure the the skin of the jet engine. The reason we did that is because we figured out that that was actually pretty crucial to the machine learning algorithm to accurately predict thrust. So that I mean that rig really became our truth data, right? So a machine learning algorithm you need to train it somehow, or at least yeah. the training that that we care about the the applications that we care about. We need to train on truth data, so. Once we had this thing set up in S-Rig, we were able to collect, no kidding, truth data and, and train our algorithm. So we did a handful of engine runs. Uh, like I said, the, at first we didn't have that extra thermal couple. So our results um, for predicting thrust were good in one regime but bad on another, like off by 10%. So, But for no, but for no good reason, right? So we added that thermal couple on the skin of the the outer skin around the combustion chamber, and that correlated to the change in thrust. So it, basically what that means is as the engine was heating up, the amount of thrust that it was producing changed on an order of 10%, which is crazy. And it was yeah. not a unknown or, or predicted thing until we measured it. So anyway, we were, we were able to collect data and then train our algorithm. And once the algorithm was trained, it can it can say for a given requested shaft speed it can say this is what the thrust is going to be and it can predict it you know within two percent like 1.8 percent error so very accurately i mean that all sounds kind of academic so what's really cool though is that our machine learning algorithm was able to learn the data points from uh I think it's probably a total of 10 minutes of engine runs of like kind of randomly varying and up and down, stepping the engine around. It's a total of uh, like 400 data points. That's all it took for it to be able to predict the thrust, 400 data points. And we were able to run that, those data points through the, the algorithm that was running on a Raspberry Pi, so like a $50 little microcontroller. And it trained the neural network in... 2.1 milliseconds. <laughs> and then once it's trained, cool. it can it can create a prediction at like two hundred thousand Hertz on a Raspberry Pi. So it's able to evaluate its model and create a a prediction of what should be happening at an incredibly high rate on an on an embedded type, you know, edge type device like a Raspberry Pi.
1: And we're yeah, and you're not really changing the size or the power consumption of the end product right because you're not adding a lot of uh, hardware to it is that accurate that is
0: that is accurate and it it, our ideal situation is there's already a microcontroller that we have access to and just like you said it's we push a software update a firmware update to something and all of a sudden it has a game-changing capability as opposed to oh we got to strap a whole new thing on this thing in the case of this little jet engine in the phase one, so phase one is supposed to be kind of a proof of concept. So it is kind of a minimal effort. So for the phase two, like, what we really wanted to get to, what we really do want to get to is uh, an integrated power propulsion thermal management system. So power propulsion thermal, PPT, it's a big problem for, like, you know, 6th gen plus aircraft. So higher, faster... So you got skin heating going on. Hi- higher is good for thermal because it's cold up there. But your motors that are generating unbelievable amounts of thrust to get you that fast—they actually don't—they don't use that much fuel, especially as engines get more and more efficient um, with each generation. So fuel is a is a typical method of, of shedding heat. Right, you actually circulate the fuel and heat it up. It's actually good for the fuel as well, right? It changes the chemical. It elevates the chemical state, and it burns better when it's hot. And now you've, you've kicked that heat out the back. But it, the less fuel flow you have, the less capability you have. And now the faster you go, the more you're heating up. So you can see that these are all big problems, and they all are related, right? Because the motors are generating heat. And oh, by the way, it's power propulsion thermal. So the power piece is the electrical generation piece. So electrical generation creates heat sensors require power sometimes a lot of power depending on what they're doing so all these things are interrelated what's crazy is that the traditional solution is to cobble together these subcontractor systems you know one one company makes the motor with its own controller one company makes the electrical uh, power distribution system you know one company makes the sensor one co- you know it's it's all disparate So it has to be cobbled together so our overarching premise is that if you have a management system that has a machine learning algorithm you know as its key like capability you can now learn those complex interactions you don't necessarily have to turn around and like control but the least you can do is start to understand like what the optimum performance is you can establish like a baseline of performance and then you can start to uh, alert to deviations from the from the baseline. So that's the going-in premise uh, for our phase two. You know, eventually, big picture, we'd love to be paired with uh, with an aircraft OEM, you know, a, a big integrator that it, that are that it, you know is bringing these systems together. So um, in the meantime, we're starting small. So just to to prove that we can up the complexity. We're going to create. We are creating a hybrid um, powertrain for like a hybrid UAS. So, h- hybrid drones are are definitely a thing. They're an up and coming, growing market. It's a it, it has its own challenges in and of itself, believe it or not. And this is another great example of technology that that translates from the drone space to the flying taxi urban air mobility space because they certainly have interest in hybrid powertrains. Um, so the amount of power generation and handling that uh, that immense power load for you know aircraft electric motors is a huge challenge, and then kind of balancing everything out between your batteries, the power distribution, your uh, your gas uh, engine, your heavy fuel engine, be that a turbine or a reciprocating engine, and having that all operate in unison um, is a is a huge challenge. So we're going to prove that out on a small scale yeah. first. Go ahead.
1: Nice. Is, uh, and not to dive too deep down this rabbit hole, but I imagine that we're leveraging the, uh, the gas powered motor, whichever that one is to kind of get up to altitude. And then once we're up at altitude and we're just kind of cruising, that's where we're using the electric or is it the other way around or is it varied? Yeah. So the,
0: what, what we're creating for the project is a generic, um, power propulsion thermal system that does not have an aircraft attached, it just has all the pieces, but what I imagine it being is uh, a high-speed VTOL aircraft. So it's going to have four to six lifting motors that are electric, so it allows it to vertical takeoff, and then it has uh, a jet engine for horizontal propulsion. And it all co- it can also aid in the in the lifting propulsion. But you have a jet engine for your electrical power, and your you know obviously you're you're, you're pulling the, the the generators pulling kinetic energy off the the jet engine for for power generation. Um, but you're primarily using your electric like you have a big electric draw at takeoff and landing. And then once you're up at altitude, you have depending on what kind of sensors you're using, right? You have electric draw, uh, and yeah. then. You also have a a thermal loop potentially for um for keeping the batteries at an optimum temperature at altitude so that's all that's all gonna be baked into what what we're looking at so the end product there is going to be a very small companion computer so like a raspberry pi style uh plug into a power distribution board that We'll initially just model subsystems and the overall system and then report back and really what the air force is interested in is is more of that kind of health and status for like fleet management which dude we i there's just so many options to this right like <laughs> just the idea of yeah. of being able to accurately predict the remaining useful life of one of these kind of attributable uh, little jet engines is really compelling but then think about the market for uh, being de- being able to accurately predict battery remaining useful life. So there's a lot of people looking at that right now, a lot of different yeah. uh, solutions, a lot of different uh, you know algorithms out there. But if, you know, if you already have a smart battery, which usually if someone says smart, that means there's a microcontroller somewhere. Usually what that microcontroller does is collect data sometimes to kind of show some sort of state of charge of a battery but then you ask the manufacturer like what are you doing with the data it's like oh no we're not we haven't figured that out yet or we're not doing anything we're just collecting the data That it's smart we collect the data it's like well what are you doing with the data <laughs> right um, uh, so yeah there's there's a big offshoot opportunity out of this for both the the micro turbine which that's more of like a dod kind of niche thing potentially but if if the battery piece and health and status of of the battery um you know, if that if that pans out, that we we've done some simulation testing where it, it's incredibly accurate that you know we're able to on very little data predict the the useful life of a battery pack, um, and that has its own its own market. So,
1: yeah. Well, the uh, one one question I had was uh, for the um, the uh, resolution type stuff or the the OCR type. Um, like target recognition type stuff that that you guys have been working on. Uh, how does that, I mean, how does that work? Is it is it like an OCR that we would find off the shelf or is it doing something wildly different because it's using that, like, uh, a, what is it, the artificial neural network and all that?
0: I'm not sure I'm following. So we... Okay. We haven't done too much work with auto target recognition. With all, with well, sorry, items. I
1: guess I was... Gotcha. With the I, I thought you said uh, one of the the PHes. I think it was Dan did optics. Yes, and it was and recognizing uh, products. Is that what he was doing, or what was he working in optics with?
0: Yeah, that's that's just his background. And you know, I I bug him that's... every now and then to uh, to bring that side of his experience and knowledge to the company, but we we just don't have the time. But re- yeah. rest assured, it's. Yeah. The, our, our, our technology roadmap is, is very, very long and, and, and deep, I guess I should say, so to speak on that whole thing. So, um, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's just a matter of time and effort. And that, that's a huge challenge for any entrepreneur out there. That's been a huge challenge for me, you know, just full of incredible opportunity and, and excitement for um, the possibilities and then you just you just shotgun your efforts everywhere and uh you yeah that that is not what is needed to actually create a definitive product that is you know enables you to to climb lip crawl out of the valley of death and, and actually get on tra- on a trajectory so the um combining the optics knowledge that Dan has and the kind of the state of the art for uh, For image recognition i think we have a play there uh well i I know we do because dan says we do and i actually have a a second co-founder i didn't i haven't mentioned him at all his name's andrew he's also a phd in physics he's he has his own research company that's done work for darpa Um, we we have considered pitching some kind of ground level kind of in, in pixel processing it's called if you've ever heard of such a thing Where there's actually neural networks like in the electronics beneath each individual pixel that's pre processing. Yeah. That's wild. So we think we we have a play like on that level where you're actually, you know, instantiating the neural network in the electronics themselves. It's really super fast when you do that like ridiculously fast.
1: Yeah when I, I i imagine you know i i know i mean you you flew f16 so you you probably remember the pod mm-hmm. you know the sniper pod yeah. where it's it's an hd pod it's actually a good pod but it goes through like i imagine i don't know but like a coax cable yeah. like you used to use for cable tv and uh and then now it gets displayed on this like 4 inch monitor that's just not good either mm-hmm. but then you go to the mq9 and it's this like amazing image that gets displayed and now we talk about hey we have the ability to capture these optics and to see things really really well and now we can put like this uh processing in each pixel and now you're like this is that is where we get a tactical advantage where if if an adversary tries to do the concealment or anything like that it's probably not going to be helpful for him just because the the tech has come so far Well, the, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you get going, but, uh, how can people contact you and reach out if they, if they think they have some, some helpful stuff or they want to kind of bring you on, uh, to work with them?
0: Yeah, I think the easiest way is to go to our website. So flyrescon.com, F-L-Y-R-E-S-C-O-N.com and, uh, go to the contact page. Um, you can send me an email. I'm at my first name dot last name at flyrescon.com. So brian.govay b-r-i-a-n dot g-y-o-v-a-i at flyrescon.com and I apologize for the Hungarian last name with, um, with the g-y construct it's actually pretty common in, in Hungary but it throws people for a loop but yep so feel free to email me direct or if you can't remember all that go to the website and uh, be happy to take any questions
1: Yeah, great. Well, I'll have uh, your website and your email in the show notes. So if anybody wants to check it out, it'll be right there. You can click on it. And uh, message them directly if you want to reach out. If, uh, remember everyone, I'm terrible at this. I'm supposed to say at the beginning, but I always remember by the end. Uh, Please like and subscribe and share the podcast so other people can hear about it. Especially if uh, you know some people in the innovation space that may be interested in this content. Send it their way. Uh, Let them know what we're working on uh, so we can spread the word about the Kodiak Shack uh, check out our website, KodiakShack.com, And then you can email us if you'd like to be on the show or learn more about us or our companies, uh, at info at dot com. steel. Thanks for, uh, hanging out and, uh, making me smarter on some, uh, some, uh, adaptive neural networks.
0: Yeah, Vader. It was fun, man. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. See ya. See yeah.